1: Find out more by going to squared.com forward slash partnerships.
2: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. We're welcoming back a friend of the show today, the historian, author and co-host of The Rest is History podcast, Tom Holland. His latest book is Pax, War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age. And joining him to discuss it is Hannah Cornwell, Associate Professor of Ancient History at the University of Birmingham. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free and enjoy the full-length version you can support our mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversations by heading to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or by subscribing to our channel via Apple. Let's join Hannah Cornwell and Tom Holland in conversation.
0: Tom, Welcome and firstly many congratulations on your latest book Pax. So as a way into our discussion I thought we might start with addressing a point that you raise in your preface which is as readers we seem continually fascinated with the ancient world and with Rome in particular which you attribute to their sort of complete difference to ourselves Uh, and you also stress in your preface that we should not understand the inhabitants of the Roman world and I quote, on our terms, but on their own, in all their ambivalence, their complexity and their contradictions. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how Pax addresses this and what are some of the main themes and ideas the book conveys in this regard?
3: Well, I, I think Rome does fascinate us more perhaps than, um, than any other ancient civilization. And I think that's partly because of the, the sheer quantity of records that we have from it. So we kind of feel that we know the Romans better. Um, I I think it's also because um, the glamour of the Roman Empire um, is more present in our imaginings. Um, But I think it's also because we actually do feel that we're quite quite like the Romans. I think we are, are tempted to look back to Rome and see our own reflection in it. And that's been a constant throughout European history. I mean, almost the moment that the Roman Empire had fallen, there were there were kings who wanted to restore it, whether it's Charlemagne and then right the way through into the present day. The idea that Rome is something to be emulated, I think, has been an absolute constant. And the Rome that people want to emulate essentially is... The period of the Pax Romana, the heyday of the Roman Empire, the 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 period that Edward Gibbon famously described as being the um, the period when the condition of human of humankind was uh, at its happiest and and most contented. Um, Gibbon's take on this, of course, was shaded by the fact that he knew what was going to happen. He knew that this this period of peace and prosperity was going to um, melt away and uh, embark on the, the long process of decline and fall. That is the great theme of his book. But he was also his his description of the heyday of the empire is kind of hedged around with mordancy and irony and ambivalence and all those qualities that you would expect from Gibbon. I mean, he's aware that it is an autocracy, that it is um, a military despotism, effectively. Um, and he has a kind of um, drawing on Tacitus, I guess, a sense that the fruits of civilization are ambivalent, um, are not 100% to be praised. But he does kind of laud it as an unprecedented period of peace. And I think that even though today we are much more ambivalent towards, obviously, the, the, the character of imperialism. We, we don't take the idea that empires are ipso facto things to be celebrated. But even so, there remains this idea that if, for instance, we are looking at Hadrian's Wall, by and large, we are identifying with the people who are on the Roman side of the wall rather than on the Caledonian side of the wall. And I suppose the most... Um, the most influential modern contemporary manifestation of that is um, Game of Thrones where Hadrian's wall is transmuted into a colossally high wall of ice um, but that was directly inspired by George R. R. Martin going to I think to housesteads and visiting the site at, you know the, the the dusk of a, a, a late English autumn and imagining himself there. So I think that there is that, that that enduring sense that when we look to the Romans, we do see, you know, we are tempted to see ourselves, we are tempted to identify with the Romans. But I think that they are, well, I mean, I, I, I think that they are fathomably stranger and more terrifying than that leads us to think. I mean, I, I and, and just going back to the other reason why I think we identify with them, why we're fascinated by them, it's, it's the sense of glamour and ferocity. We're, we're obsessed by them in the same way that the star of uh, Jurassic Park is the, is the Tyrannosaur.
0: It's a fantastic comparison, the Romans uh, and the T-Rex. Um, but I really appreciate in your book that you do stress the importance to acknowledge that they are different and that they need to be understood on their terms and not in the context of modern modern ideas of morality and civilization if we're to really sort of get to grips with what's happening and why individuals within that world are doing what they're doing. Um, you mentioned uh, in that brief discussion about the importance of, of peace and this particular period of history, which uh, for those who uh, are about to read Tom's book, uh, starts with the um, the suicide of Nero in 68 um, AD and sort of takes us all the way through to the end of Hadrian's reign in 138 um, and as you say, sort of the idea of peace associated with this period has sort of been continuous uh, in, in, in scholarship and the way we look back to the Roman past. Um, I was very struck when reading your book and reflecting back on the, the first two books in what is now the Roman trilogy, how you're able to find that one word that pinpoints the crucial concept or the focus of the book. Uh, so you've got Rubicon, dynasty and, and now Pax. And you've already touched a little bit on this, but why for you is Pax the key concept through which to explore this period of the late first century to the mid second century AD? Um, and this might lead us to discuss what Pax actually means, but that's quite a complicated question.
3: Well, if we translate it simply as peace, um, I, I think however revisionist you are, however sceptical of the achievements of Roman imperialism, the fact remains that The whole of the Mediterranean, because it has been brought under the the rule of a single power, it is in a condition of peace that is exceptional by what had gone before and indeed by what was to follow. Um, And it does seem that this period... um, whether it's based in terms of the, the, the volume, say, of uh, amphora remains that are found or uh, the number of shipwrecks that are found on the, uh, the, the, the bed of the Mediterranean. There are all kinds of ways of, of measuring um, trade and prosperity. But it does seem to have been by the standards of the pre-industrial world, a, a period of prosperity. Now, what is the price? <laughs> What's the price of that? And you talk about, I mean, Pax for the Romans is a very um, aggressive word. It doesn't have the kind of the slightly passive connotations that it has for us. Peace is upheld at the point of a sword. And this book begins in in the, the, the fateful year, AD 69, where... Um, The Julia-Claudian dynasty has ended. The bloodline of Augustus is extinct. Um, Nero is gone. The question is then, who is going to rule the empire? And this is a question that prompts um, a period of near anarchy with four Caesars um, succeeding one another in in very rapid succession. And it looks to many people at that period as though the empire is going to collapse, um, as though the, the crisis is a systemic one. But in the event, it turns out not to be systemic. It turns out these, these, these wars that convulse the empire turn out to be kind of surface eddies. And the long-term peace is upheld. But it's upheld by virtue of the same military resources that had temporarily had plunged the Roman world into, into, um, in, into civil war and anarchy, which is essentially that the autocracy of the Caesars is nothing without military power. It's that military power that upholds the peace. It's that military power that threatens the peace.
0: Absolutely, and there's um, one point in in your narrative, I mean, actually the, the concept of the importance of the legions and the Praetorian Guard, but also taxation as a way of helping to maintain that sort of, is it's threads throughout the entirety of your, your book. But there's um, one particular point when you're discussing the situation in, in Gaul and Germany um, and I think you're not directly quoting, but it seems to me that you're paraphrasing a speech that Tacitus puts into the mouth of a Roman general when he's addressing uh, Gallic leaders um, that there can be no peace or calm among people without arms, no arms without military pay, and no military pay without taxes. Um, this sort of argument about sort of you know why you need to submit to us. Um, he, he talks to the Gallic leaders. Uh, you know, wars there have always been wars uh, for, for, for kings, and you have particularly. Uh, desirable resources and land—you're always going to be subject to people attacking you, unless you pay our. You okay, yeah, exactly, the price <laughs> for our peace and our military protection is, is the tax. Um, and so I wonder. Yeah. But
3: the amazing thing about that is is that it's it's in the context of um, a year that will be succeeded by um, Gallic nobility laying claim to a, a, a line of descent from Caesar, Julius Caesar um and kind of uh, declaring a form of independence from the city of Rome that isn't that is nevertheless also remains roman and the the kind of the paradox of a gallic empire that is claiming to be roman is pointing towards what will basically be the future of romanitas a world in which to be roman becomes something that is increasingly divorced from Uh, a sense of identification with the city of rome itself and i think that you can this episode where essentially figures in gaul and along the, the the line of the the rhine have identified themselves with a particular understanding of rome that is contrary to the regime that ends up being established in rome by vespasian and 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 his armies it's a it's a it's It's presented by Roman writers as a kind of barbarian rebellion or whatever, but it isn't really. Even though it involves the Gallic nobility, it actually remains a Roman civil war. And that is a kind of pointer to what will happen in the third and fourth centuries. (music)
0: Absolutely. And um, when I was reading your book, and this is the point you just made uh, about who is Roman, who is not, and how that changes and evolves, and how this Gallic Empire is, in fact, Roman, uh, just sort of contrary to the Rome that's being constructed in the city of Rome. Uh, how similar that is to what's happening in the fall of the Republic and the civil wars, the question of whose version of the Roman state is the right one or the better one. It's a continuous sort of dialogue that goes all the way back really to the sort of, at least as the Romans tell it themselves and Greek historians as well, the foundation of the city, a constant sort of conflict as to, you know, who forms the Roman state. But that did really strike me in a narrative about what it means to be Roman and who is included and who is excluded and how that changes over this period, um, both in terms of becoming more inclusive in terms of who, who the leaders are, but also the various peoples encompassed within the Pax Romana or the boundaries of the empire. And particularly with one of the, the great monuments you've already mentioned, Hadrian's Wall, acting as a sort of barrier, along with other barriers that he creates and constructs around the Roman world to delimit who is Roman and who is barbarian. Um, I suppose, could you say a little bit more about sort of that exploration about Romanitas, as you said, and what it is to be Roman and not Roman?
3: Well, it's um, right from the beginning. I mean, the stories that are told of, of Rome is that it's um, it, it, it's a city for outsiders. So the asylum, a place on, on the Capitol, was um, supposedly... You know, the, the word comes from Romulus, the founder of Rome, the first king of Rome, saying, "Anyone who comes here, um, doesn't matter whether you're a criminal or whatever, a refugee, you can come here and be enrolled as a, as a, as a Roman." And even as the bonds of citizenship throughout the Republican period are key to, I think, to explaining the military and social success of the Republic. At the same time. There is a recognition from other peoples, particularly Greeks who are astounded by it, that the Romans are peculiarly generous or prodigal with with their citizenship, depending on your perspective. And this is something that um, in the era of the uh, of the Roman autocracy, the Roman state has continues to accept Um, it. it, The Julia Claudian emperors, the the Caesars who rule in, in a line of succession from Augustus kind of recognize that they should be generous with the citizenship, for instance, towards Gauls. Um, under Claudius, people in the Senate, kind of conservatives get very cross at the idea that uh, that Gallic nobility might be coming to the Senate and they kind of sneer about people wearing trousers and all this kind of thing. But actually, you know, the, the, the Gallic nobility by this point are wearing togas and um, thoroughly Roman, Romanized. And over the course of the, uh, the decades that follows the year of the four emperors, the establishment of peace first by the Flavian dynasty, so Vespasian and his two sons, Titus and Domitian, and then by the, the emperors that um, Gibbon characterizes as ruling over the happiest and most prosperous period of, of, of human history. So Nerva, um, Trajan, Hadrian, and their two heirs. Um, this, the, the conditions of peace enable people even in the east where they are where 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 greek speakers uh the heirs of various kind of kings or whatever to be enrolled in what you might call almost call the roman dream the idea that um leading figures from the eastern provinces as well can be become senators can become consuls even um and so you are starting to see particularly under hadrian a man who as a as a as a child was called graculus the little greek um who who was passionate about um Greek culture, Greek civilization, adored Athens, adored everything about um, Greek civilization, uh, enrolls the various cities of Greece who back in the classical period had had been famous for fighting one another in a kind of Hellenic European Union, equivalent of the EU. Um, And this sense that one of the great achievements of Roman rule is to provide the conditions of peace in which Greeks can fulfill their cultural destiny without fighting and tearing one another apart becomes a kind of key marker of Roman civilization. And that sense that, that, you know, people today talk about Greco-Roman civilization. This is, by by the time of Hadrian, this is something that is becoming more than just a platitude. It's it's vivid in Hadrian himself. It's vivid in the architecture that he sponsors, but it's vivid as well in the writings and the literature of the age. So the paradigmatic Greco-Roman figure would be Plutarch, who is um, uh, from Boeotia, the region dominated by Thebes, um, very proud Greek. But famously, writes a series of paired biographies, um, combining balancing Greek and Roman figures, and again, kind of looking forward to the very deep future in which the last capital of the Roman Empire will be Constantinople, a city that is Greek-speaking, um, and to this day, uh, you know, there are there are Muslims who who think of of the Greek world as as Romelli, as as the kingdom of Rome of Rome. Um, so it it is a kind of astonishing process of cultural change and i think that this period is is key in seeing uh, a move away from old-fashioned conservative roman chauvinism to a kind of more an awareness that the that, that the identity of roman is going to be more various now that's not to say that there aren't lots of romans who don't hate it there are plenty of whom i guess juvenile is is the most entertaining but i think it is a process that 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 smart, intelligent thinkers of whom Hadrian would be the paradigm are recognizing, you know, there's no going back from this. You've got to go with the flow.
0: Yeah. And I think that's something your your book illustrates so well. Um, not just in terms of the individuals you mentioned who you know sort of have multiple, as it were, sort of identities or origins, identifying as Greek or or Bithynian, um, but also Roman, but also the, sort of the just the territorial breadth of what the Roman Empire comes to encompass, how it can include um, you know, Caledonia all the way through to, to Syria and, and North Africa, and how that allows us to, to expand our point of view about what the Roman world is. You know, we tend to think of it, or at least historically, as being the city of Rome without realizing it actually includes parts of Asia and North Africa uh, and the diversity of people who who inhabit those parts of the world.
3: So the scale of the Roman Empire in this period, I mean, we're so habituated. We, we we do it at school. You look at maps of the Roman Empire in its heyday and you think, oh, that's quite big. But it, it's it's possible for your brain not to engage with the sheer scale of, of the lands and the territories that are ruled by the Caesars. And while I was um, doing the work, preparatory work on this, um, I, be- I began it under the lockdown. And. Of course, one of the things about the lockdown was that travel became, uh, certainly by car or public transport, became um, much harder. Um, and because we were allowed, we were legally allowed to take exercise to walk from our front door and you could go as far as you like and then walk back. Um, we started taking advantage of that in the lockdown and we ended up walking for miles and miles across London where we live, Um 20 30 40 miles but it gave me a much more vivid sense of what life would have been like in a pre-industrial society where your your your, your, your horizons are bounded by the physical limits of often of how far you can walk and writing the book and thinking about what it is actually like physically to walk 20 miles or 30 miles and then th- looking at the maps it gave me a much much profounder respect for the vastness of, of, of the Roman world and also how um, what an achievement it was to maintain transport links between all these various parts. So whether it's the shipping lanes that by and large are, are, are clear of piracy. You can essentially send large flotillas carrying grain or merchandise or whatever and be reasonably confident that if storms don't intervene they will get to where they're meant to be going and also the roads these kind of you know these back in the the days of the roman conquest of these various territories had been like the meshes of a net cast over uh, conquered territories but which by this point are kind of more like sinews joining disparate areas Uh, and i think that Again, one of the lessons of earlier and later periods of Roman history is how easy it is for these tendons to be cut, how easy it is for the various parts of of the Roman world to be separated. So if you think about the civil wars that rage in the first century B.C., whether it's between Julius Caesar Pompey or um, the future Augustus and uh, Mark Antony, that dividing line running down the Adriatic and across the Mediterranean, which in the long run. In the fourth and fifth centuries, will become the dividing line between the eastern and Roman halves of the Roman Empire. I mean, it 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 is there right from the beginning. It is a constant fracture point, and what the events of the um, the era of the four emperors suggest is that there are other ones. So there's the Pyrenees. So Galba, who who is the first um, emperor to to rule in succession to Nero. He, he Spain is is a stronghold because it's protected by the pyrenees he is the um the, the the dominant roman official in spain it's it's an inherent stronghold um the alps likewise are a kind of major fracture point the channel of course um and in the long run it's these fra- it's these kind of fracture points that will lead to the disintegration of the empire in the west and i think that 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 keeping that in mind just enhances one respect for the incredible Military, uh, administrative, organisational achievement—that it was simply to keep these lines of communication open and maintained.
0: Absolutely, I think um, there's a sense of it, it is a global network. You know, you talk about Rome being a global empire in the book. It is a network, uh, as you say, the lines of communication, trade network, the movement of peoples. Particularly, you see that particularly in the army, and I think you have a nice instance of. Um, graffito or a piece of graffiti in po- graffiti in Pompeii, which is written in a dialect of Arabic uh, so someone's come from one side of the Medi- Mediterranean and, and likewise we see the same in, in, in Britain with um, inscriptions that are in Latin but also in palmyrene so again from the Far East um, And j- just to sort of as you said to try and wrap our our, our 21st century brains around and, and that kind of movement
3: and of course it's it's not just within the limits of the Empire so this is also the heyday of trade links with India. And one of the kind of the, the, the great dramatic um, kind of periods, areas of research in ancient history at the moment is, is the realization of just how rich and complex these were centered um, not on the idea of silk roads, not, not, not land routes, but sea routes. So the um, various Red Sea ports which had been originally set up by the um, the Greek kings, the Ptolemies, um, and had then slightly gone into abeyance. But they these are are, are resurrected, revitalized, refurnished um, in the 1st and 2nd centuries AD. Um, and they send out fleets that go on the trade winds. They go to India, they go to, to Kerala. They stock up not just on goods from India, so that would be pepper or spices or whatever, but also goods from further afield, of which silk, of course, is... The most celebrated and then they get blown back on the trade winds and this sense of um a romano egyptian and indian world joined by these trade links is so interesting i mean it, it it really is properly global and kind of provides a context for the great military expedition of the age uh, which is trajan's attempt to um conquer the uh, the, the one um significant geopolitical entity that sits on the roman borders which is the parthian empire and essentially blocks the trade routes between um the roman east and uh, a, a, and mainland india um and you know trajan um seems to have done tremendously well he's the great conqueror he's the optimus princeps the best of emperors but it all goes horribly wrong and um trajan's reign ends up illustrating the timeless lesson don't invade iraq um so, uh, but, but, but I mean, the thing is that the the, the kind of emblematic moment of, of for, for Hadrian, sorry, for Trajan is arriving on the Persian Gulf and seeing a ship sailing away and being told, well, that's going to India. And this kind of, this, this pothos, this yearning, this Alexander type desire to see the limits of the world is frustrated, even as it's kind of being satisfied by the quantity of merchandise that is coming into the Roman Empire.
0: That quantity of merchandise um, is, I suppose, something that... The very beginning of your book, book, just before you start part one, the first chapter, you have two quotations, one from Pliny the Elder and one from Tacitus. And the Pliny the Elder one talks about the um, let I me mean, find the exact quote so I'm not misquoting the translations here. Truly, it is though the Romans and the boundless majesty of their peace has been bestowed by the gods upon humanity. Um and in the fuller extent of the passage, um which comes from the 27th book of Pliny's Natural Histories, he he sort of embeds this idea of the um, Immensa Romani Iparchis Maestate, so the immense majesty of the Roman peace within a discussion of all these different types of plants that are coming from all over the world. So the, the Scythian plants, something from Mount Atlas, the Pillars of Hercules, uh, Britannica, Ethiopia, and it's all these plants coming to Rome. And although he doesn't link it with Vespasian's Temple of Peace. There have been arguments by people about planting within the, the Temple of uh, Temple of Peace an idea of uh, botanical imperialism that what is being put on display to Rome in terms of these trade routes, in terms of what have been brought and imported, is an expression through, in this case, of power. The, of power, yeah. yeah of
3: and that goes back power. to
0: yeah, Pliny Pliny in his natural histories, um, and I think you again quoting your book, you know, sort of the, the desire to sort of list or document everything is an expression yeah, and, of and, roman control over the ability to list and, course, and
3: catalog as gibbon is writing about you know his 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 vision of of the 2nd century ad as this great golden age of peace british naturalists are going around the world and bringing back cuttings and putting them in kew gardens so there is a sense that you know kew gardens has been um foreca- foretold by by the roman fascination with plants and of course the the most celebrated the thing that everyone knows about the uh, the ambition of romans to source uh living um living things that can illustrate the the, the scope and sweep of roman power is th- the most famous building that is built in rome in this period which is the colosseum uh the the animals that are brought there are i mean they're designed to to terrify, to 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 stimulate, to kind of inspire awe, but they're also designed to illustrate the the sheer reach of Roman power. So you have uh, you have a malefactor being gnawed in his vitals by a by a Caledonian bear, and the whole point is that it has come from Caledonia, um, the furthest, most barbarous mid infested <laughs> reaches of the world. Caesar commands it.
0: Yeah, this, this, this showcase of of the exotic or the strange, or I suppose, to a, an audience in Rome, almost the unreal is, is is achievable, as you said, because Caesar commands it. Um, just on that point, I suppose I was I was struck in the book about how many really vivid moments and descriptions of of events there are, ranging from um, really quite harrowing descriptions to things which to a modern audience might be utterly alien or bizarre or almost comic. And I wondered if there were any particular episodes and events that you encountered whilst researching and writing the book that really sort of grabbed your attention or you wanted to discuss in more detail. Well, the, I know there are so many in the book.
3: But. Well, there, there, there are two iconic ones. Um, and, and the first is um, is the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, say so the Judeans. And I... I I I call them Judeans rather than Jews, because I think that calling the inhabitants of Judea Jews, that in English, there are too many contemporary significations that that hang around the word Jew. And it implies that it is fundamentally a religious war. Um, I don't think that that is the case the Romans certainly saw the people of Judea as being peculiar, but the Romans saw pretty much everybody as being <laughs> peculiar. You know, the Judeans were odd because they worshiped their one God, but the Syrians were odd because they were prone to castrating themselves. And the Britons were odd because they were prone to committing human sacrifice. And the Egyptians were odd because they worshiped gods with human heads. I mean, everyone was peculiar by Roman standards. Um, but but obviously, the reason why we attempted to look at... Um, the, the repression of the Judean revolt, which happens um, actually before the, 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 the in the last years of uh, Nero's reign, but is crushed fu- in AD 70 when Titus, Vespasian's son, captures Jerusalem, um, incinerates it and notoriously incinerates the Jewish temple. Um, I think one of the reasons why we are prone to imagine this as being a religious war is because the destruction of Judea's metropolis jerusalem and the destruction of its temple meaning that the the cultic practices that the habits of sacrifice that um it was taken for granted in the ancient world were what hallowed um a uh, 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 people's relationship to their gods that the people of judea no longer have this and yet they maintain their identity in the long run as as we know right the way into the present day and this involves them be- becoming genuinely a very, very unusual people, even by the standards of the Romans. But at the time that Jerusalem is destroyed, I don't think that that is the case. And it's the destruction of Jerusalem that really sets the Judeans on the path to becoming Jews, if you want to kind of put it like that. And so I think that the the destruction of Jerusalem is by far the most geopolitically significant event that I describe. I mean, the the, the implications of it, the consequence of it reverberate right the way into the present day, because, of course, the the site of the Temple Mount, where the temple had stood, um, is now occupied by the Dome of the Rock, a, a, a building that is sacred to Muslims. So it is the fact that this remains as an incredible flashpoint. You know, if Titus hadn't, Hadn't or indeed, if the Judeans hadn't revolted, you know, I mean, it's hard to think how how different things might have been. And so the events, the the account of the destruction of Jerusalem, which we get from Josephus, um, who is in Titus's train at the time, we can't 100 percent trust Josephus. I mean, not just because he is spin doctoring his own role and the role of titus but also because of the, the weathering effects of memory and trauma and shock it's such a horrendous account but the very what you get from josephus is a sense that must be accurate of the terror and the horror of that siege this was the greatest siege in in roman history since the capture of carthage and Josephus' account does full justice to the terror and the horror of it. The details may not be entirely accurate, but but as a, an illustration of what offenses against the Roman peace might bring on the heads of offenders, it's unparalleled. So um, I, I wanted to bring that alive to people. I wanted people to f- to experience the suffering and the horror of that siege as though it was something you know, being reported from the front line in Ukraine or whatever, that that sense of vividness. And the other episode, of course, is probably the most famous um, destruction of a city, maybe even more famous um, than the destruction of Jerusalem in the popular imagination, which is that of Pompeii. Um, and the, the, the it's a story that's often, often been told. I mean, it's the first thing that people learn in Latin is, you know, <laughs> the Pompeian figures um, being in Horto. Um, and... And yet what I've never read of a, a full narrative account of what happens when Vesuvius erupts that blends all the various elements of evidence, which is, of course, written. So Pliny's letters, the younger Pliny um, and all the various inscriptions that have been kind of garnered from Pompeii and Herculaneum and, and further afield and the um, the references to the the disaster in other historians. Um but also, of course, the archaeological record, and what I found most fascinating of all doing the research is, which is the, um, the 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 understanding that we now have of it that derives from volcanology. The way that volcanologists have looked at it and have essentially kind of worked out pretty much what the stages of the the eruption were, and therefore what that meant for people in its path. Um, and so, I I really really enjoyed. Fusing all those disparate elements of uh, uh, pieces of evidence and fusing them together into what I hope is is not just a coherent but a relatively accurate account of what happened. And putting it like that, you just realise, again, I mean, how horrendous it must have been. I mean, just terrifying, terrifying, terrifying. Even for those who survived it. And what's amazing is is not the scale of the trauma that it obviously inflicted, but relatively speaking, how how little trace it leaves in the written records. Because I, th- the conclusion I came to, and I don't know whether you'd agree on this, is that the the very, very enigmatic figure of Domitian, who succeeded, Titus, Titus who had sacked Jerusalem, um, is emperor when Vesuvius erupts, but dies very soon afterwards. And is succeeded by Domitian, who um, who rules for a fair few years and then is assassinated. And his memory is kind of blackened by, uh, by by his heirs. But I think that so much of what he is doing and what Titus is doing is governed by a a, a sense of the horror that has overwhelmed the Roman world in this period. So not just the war, but but the destruction of this of, of pompeii and herculaneum the plagues that um hit rome in this period the destruction by fire twice within the period of of a pretty much a decade of the the great temple to jupiter on the, on the capitoline hill the holy you know so so we think of the the, the temple in jerusalem as being um you know, a a totemic, iconic um, figure, sacred to the gods. But so too is another temple, this temple that also gets destroyed a few months before the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem and then burns down again a decade later. And and I think the trauma of this is measurably immense on Domitian and explains the kind of emperor he becomes, which is a very, very autocratic figure, convinced that it is his God-appointed duty to reform the Roman people there's almost a kind of Christian quality to him. I kept thinking when I was writing about him how suited he would have been to the fourth or fifth century. Um, you know, he would have. Been, it's almost as though his understanding of of the divine, of 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 the supernatural, of the gods, is so strong that it almost requires a kind of single god, right. of the kind that Constantine had introduced.
0: Wonderful. And final question, which hopefully will be a short one from Amelia. Were you taken aback by the success of the Rest Is History podcast?
3: Completely taken aback. Um, I originally started it basically to um, <laughs> to have a way to, p- to promote my books. Um, so I'm amazed that it's um, it has as many followers as as it does, um, and that it's now absorbing as much of, of of my time as it does. And you know, absolutely thrilled by it. It's um, it's been a, a a kind of transformative. Um, experience, absolutely, you know, and it's 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 like doing a, a constant history degree. Um, you know, we're doing different topics every week, lots of which I, I knew very little about, um, and the opportunity to to learn and study these different periods is constant source of stimulation and and enjoyment. So uh, I'm very grateful to everybody who listens to it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. It was produced by Hannah Kay
2: with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy a longer version of this, then head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership and sign up to enjoy even more member benefits. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at IntelligenceSquare.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events, or peruse over 20 years of the back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to IntelligenceSquare.com.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket.